people would come off the elevator and they'd look around and they'd say, are you staging this? Like people look happy here. They're smiling, they're laughing, that you know, they're working really hard. And because they're working hard and feeling good about themselves and about their futures and about them growing as a person, yeah, that's why they're laughing. That's why they're having fun. And that's why they don't want to leave. That to me is what leadership is. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. This is Ben Morton, and a very warm welcome to episode 83 of the podcast, in which we are joined by Jay Steinfeld. Jay founded and was the CEO of Blinds.com, the world's number one online window covering retailer. It's a business he bootstrapped in 1996 for just $3,000, from his Bel Air, Texas garage, which was then acquired by Home Depot in 2014. Jay then remained as its CEO and later joined the Home Depot online leadership team. And after stepping away from these roles in early 2020, he now teaches entrepreneurship at Rice University's Jones Graduate School of Business and has increased his involvement on numerous private company boards and serves as a director of the public company Masonite. Jay's got a new book out, Lead from the Core, The Four Principles for Profit and Prosperity, which is a Wall Street Journal bestseller. It was published on November the 30th, 2021, and is available to purchase in all the usual places. In this episode, in this fascinating episode, we spoke about what leadership really means to him, and some of the key lessons that he's learned along the way on his incredible business journey. A great deal of our conversation was centred on how he managed to really protect the culture of his business after the acquisition by Home Depot, and how he managed that transition both for himself and for all those people that he was leading within Blinds.com. But before we get into the episode, I've got an opportunity, and it's an opportunity for you to have your five minutes of fame. I would love in the future to bring some guests, some listeners onto the show to talk for just a few minutes about a particular episode that really resonated with them, and more importantly, perhaps, to talk about something that they've done differently as a result of what they heard. So if this is you, if you've got something to share, then please drop me an email to chat at ben-morton.com. I can then reply and we can schedule a time to have a chat and record a little five minute snippet that we can insert into a future episode. But let's park that for now and let's get back to this episode. So without any further delay, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Jay Steinfeld. Jay, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you with us today. Um, First of all, I always like to ask, how are you? Oh, I'm blessed. (laughs) Thank you for having me on the show, Ben. Uh, No, I'm uh, delighted to to have you with us. I'd love to dive straight in. It's the standard question I ask every guest now who comes on the show. And I always say, I think it's an easy question to ask, potentially not an easy one to answer. 
But really, what does leadership mean to you, Jay? Leadership to me means having a place to go, a really compelling destination, because you're not leading unless you're going somewhere. And it needs to be a place that people want to go and that you've articulated in some energetic, enthusiastic way, or it's going to be really hard to get people to follow you, except for the fact that you're paying them money or you require them or they're going to lose their job. But that's not really leadership. Leadership is going somewhere that that you have described that they want to go, they want to follow you. I think the second thing about leadership is developing leaders. Developing leaders is probably the number one job of a leader because you cannot do it alone. And the only way you can get there is by having lieutenants and sergeants and other people who are going to be talking to the people on a day-to-day basis. And unless you lead them and help them and develop them and make it clear as to the skills that they need, you still can't lead. Well, you can lead one or two or maybe a handful of people. But if you want to do something consequential, it's going to take a lot of people. And that means you need a lot of help. And that means developing leaders. And I think those are the two things, a destination and developing leaders. And I I remember this developing leader is such an integral part that when I was running Blinds.com, I remember there was a sales leader who who hit all his numbers. He hit all of his numbers. And yet when it came to the discretionary bonus part, I docked him because the direct his direct reports did not achieve their numbers. And he said, I hit my numbers. What are you doing? I said, your job is to create other leaders and you are not doing that. We said that's part of your job. And when I saw that he wasn't developing them and he had no successor, he got docked and was he was super upset about it. But it really does matter. And I guess in order to make the leadership role effective, it's also creating an environment, the right environment of the right culture and the right resources and the right systems, because you can want to lead somebody. But if you don't have the right resources, whether that be money or processes, you're still not going to get there or you're going to be going against headwinds the entire time. And that's not even fun. That's hard work. And when you want to lead, you want to lead in the most effortless, frictionless way. That's fun. And it will be fun if you have the right resources, the right culture, and you you have the processes that help people execute. Yeah, Jay, when we spoke a few weeks ago, you, you mentioned that story to me then, I believe, about that particular leader or manager where you docked them part of their, their bonus because they weren't developing the, the next layer down. Like, I'd, I'd love to hear sort of the the next part of that story, like what happened in the following year after that, that particular individual realize and start kind of developing other people and looking after their, their team more or what, yeah, what was the, what's the second part of that story? That's a good question, but it's an unfortunate end because that person was no longer with the company. It turned out the person was not developing people and we just couldn't stand for that. And as a result, you could see it wasn't even filtering down to layers below his direct reports. And that meant the system itself wasn't getting better. You can have one person getting better, but if the whole system isn't getting better, you're only then maximizing one link in the chain and not the entire chain. And the CEO has to look at all the different chains working in synchronization 
and you at least have to maximize that chain within your own department. And that wasn't happening. Did you always sort of have the courage to face into decisions like that? Or is that something that came with you over experience? And the the reason I ask that question is, uh, over the years, I've certainly seen this myself working in organizations, and I've had conversations with chief execs around this, maybe when I've been doing some team coaching with them or being part of a culture change program, where there might be someone on the exec team or the layer down who is absolutely killing it in terms of hitting their their numbers, their KPIs, the, the manner in which they are going about that, the behaviors or values they're demonstrating are at odds with those of the organization. And I've certainly come across some leaders who go, oh, yeah, but, but they're good at the job. They get their number. So we'll just turn a blind eye to some of that behavioral stuff. I don't think it takes a, a, a strong, courageous leader to to face into that and potentially have a performance management conversation or even let someone go who's absolutely might be their star performer in terms of output, but the the behaviors are, let's say, some, somewhat lacking. Have you always been somebody who faced into that or did it or has it come with with time and time and experience well when i started i absolutely knew nothing about leadership nor really cared basically i was an accountant and just did my thing to try to get sales and never thought much about people in general then i realized that was a selfish myopic way to, to think and i could never build anything of consequence As I realized that some people needed to be exited, no, I was not good at it. I don't know how you can be good at something when you're affecting somebody's life in such a, you know, you can say it's a harsh way, but as I've actually, it's become easier when I realized it's not harsh. It's actually generous. I know if you're the one on the other side of that generosity, generosity, it is harsh. I get that. But keeping somebody in a position where they're not happy or they're not performing well is not generous to that person. It's not generous to all the other people in your organization or to the organization or even yourself, because you know things aren't as good as they can be, and you are the one allowing it to happen, and you're allowing that person to flounder in a situation that is not in their own best interest. So you must get rid of that person. You must help that person see the light. But you asked a different question. Well, there were two. There was one, have I faced that? And no, I didn't. In fact, I remember pretty late in my career where there was a person who wanted to be CEO of the company, and I believed he really had a shot at that. And over time, I realized he didn't. And I wasn't candid with him. I I was sugarcoating. I was going around it a little bit. I was doing all the things that I'm coaching everybody else not to do. And I was doing it. And I think that is a hard thing for people to do because you feel sorry for them and you think it's going to be hurtful. And maybe there's some, I don't know, maybe there's some psychological problem that you've got, but (laughs) that it's really not in anyone's best interest. And once I realized I need to be candid, I need to be direct. And it's one of my four core values is the third core value of express yourself. And that means be candid and honest. So, no, I wasn't always good, but generally, yes, I've gotten to that point. But the other point is about when a person is performing well, but the core values are not in line with the behaviors that you want. And core values are about behavior. 
no mistake, core values are not about how you think. It's not about what you say. It's what you do. It's only about behavior. I can give you the, probably the second or third highest salesperson on my team was not living our core values. It was an easy decision. You warn the person, you give them some time and let them know that this is not acceptable. If they do it again, you must exit them or it's not fair to everybody else. Because then they say, you know, you're full of it, Jay. You espouse this and you espouse that and you're allowing that to happen. It makes you look weak. It makes you look like a hypocrite. In fact, you are weak and you are a hypocrite because you are not doing what you say you're going to do. And that means people lose trust in you in everything. So, yeah, you have to exit them. Now, there's the flip side to that, too, where people are living the core values and they're not performing. That's where you say, wait a minute, this person is giving it their effort. They're doing all the things, the behaviors that we that we cherish here, that we require here. Then what you do is you work with them and find another role for them. Possibly that's where they're better equipped, where their skills are matched better, where it would be more fun. Maybe they got bored in something and you can show them other places within the organization. And that's happened multiple times, many times, where people ended up flourishing in a different position than where they were. And they're still with the company and they're doing great. So I think the core values are so important. One, you get rid of people who are not aligned with them. And if they are and they're not performing, you can still probably find another place for them. Uh, if, it's, if it doesn't work out then, then you have no choice. But at least look at to the core values and find out if, if they're at least doing that. Because you want to tell people, if you behave the way we say you should, there's a place for you. Unless you're really <laughs> bad at, and, you, you know, you show up late and you do whatever, or you just can't hit your numbers. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I, I find that absolutely fascinating. I think mean, you've just articulated it in a very different way to I've, to I've ever heard it articulated before. What I'm talking about here is there's so many conversations around someone who is performing but not living, living the values. It's very rare that we hear people talk about the other conversation you mentioned there, which is you're absolutely living, living the values, you're demonstrating the behaviors, but you're not, not performing. And it can be very easy in those situations. And it's probably very common for an organization to go, okay, here's, here's the door. But what you've just described, I guess, is how you really build a, a great culture and engagement, right? Because you're saying, look, we, you, you've absolutely got the, the, the behaviors that, that we spouse and want in this business so let us find the role where you fit where you can really really thrive that's powerful isn't it i i think so and there's actually i'm going to take it a step further there's another problem that could exist that could also be why that person is not performing well and that's you you may have had the wrong expectations for that person you may not have shown the count of accountability, the results that you wanted, the time you wanted. You may not have developed that person. You may not have given them the right resources. So don't just look to the person. If the person is doing the behaviors in line with the values, then check first before you trick that person, say, what have I done to contribute to that? What has this organizational done? Is it the organization? Is it the systems? Is it the processes? Is it the resources? Or is it that person not following those, those processes? And then you know if it's the person or the system. 
and that's a, that's something that you have to do. I think whether they're aligned with the values or not, because if they're not performing, it could be you. I I love that. I love this conversation. It um, reminds me of that. It, it's a cliche, right? But so many cliches are true. We kind of probably need to have the camera on for this. But the cliche is like every time you point a finger at somebody, there's three fingers pointing back at you, right? Because you've got the, the, the fist is clenched as, as the one finger's pointing away. Right. So you're so right. Every time we look to blame somebody, talk about what someone else hasn't done, about how someone else is behaving in a suboptimal way or whatever like there's a lot that we're probably doing as well and it reminds me of Jocko Willink's book Extreme Ownership where he says like as a leader you own everything that goes on you're not responsible but ultimately you're you're accountable and I've I've had quite a lot of fun with groups I work with trying to trying to break that and trying to disprove that theory that ultimately kind of you you own everything you say well You've got an underperformer in, in your team. So uh, what, what's going on? Well, maybe you didn't recruit the right person. Maybe they're not the right fit for the role. They didn't um, deliver a task as expected. Maybe you didn't set expectations clearly enough. Maybe you didn't factor in what else they had on their plate. Maybe you delegated the task to the wrong wrong person. Like I can't really find a way to to, to, to break that. Most of the time, it isn't the individual person. Most of the time, it is you. So what you need to do, I think, is to, before you react, is you just pause and believe that the likelihood is that it's not the person, because it's more likely it's not. It's usually you and the systems that you have created or that your people have created, which means you have created them. So if you just take one second to think, okay, so what was my role in that? Did I hire the right person? Did I, did I train them well? Did I let them know how important these core values really are and give examples? And if I allowed those core values not to be present with other people so that when they heard them, they didn't believe it? Or did I not create that destination that I talked about earlier in your initial question and help them understand what their part is in getting to that destination. So they felt that the role that they were doing was inconsequential. And why should I even do that? What do I care? So they lose interest, they become stagnant, and then they don't develop, and then they get apathy. And that's your fault too. You didn't paint a compelling enough vision in the first place. And then people wonder why people quit. Great resignation, Maybe that's your fault too. I know this is sounding really harsh and I don't mean to sound harsh or arrogant or like I'm a know-it-all because I'm not sure. I'm not leading in in today's pandemic environment and the great resignation, but I know that if I had a great destination and a vision and help people understand what their role is in it and how consequential and significant they are and why they're important and to give them a voice in that destination, I think a lot fewer people would leave. And what's happening is because people didn't really get this, of course, people are going to leave when they can get a little extra money. Now, in some cases, it's a lot and you can never really do anything about that. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to get 50% more money. Yeah, take it. But in most cases, they're not even going to start looking if they're happy and they feel that they're being um, valued and respected and that there's humanity in the workplace. I mean, is respect and humanity too much to ask? 
I, I don't think so. It should be a given, right? It should absolutely be a, a, a given. In my judgment, of course. I don't think anybody can deny that. Now, what your behaviors are might not be aligned with that, but I've, I've got thoughts on that too. But what's your next question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned um, the destination piece a, a, again, actually, as well, because there was a question I had when you first mentioned that. Um, so chatting to you over the past few weeks preparing for this and from what you've said already, I really get a sense of when you're talking about the, the destination or the vision, you're not just talking about the organization's position in this ranking or that ranking or being the best blinds company in, in the States. I get a sense you're talking much more around what it's going to feel like to be a part of this company in the future as well, right? And thinking about the, the, the culture. Is that is that fair? Is that is that kind of your take on when you talk about the destination? Is that what you mean? There is some implied visceral emotional value to this destination. Like, well, let me explain that, then I'll get back to sort of uh, what my purpose is. Purpose, to me, is a little bit more along that line. And I'm on a bunch of boards, public board and private boards, a lot of private boards mostly. And vision is always a hard one, especially for the private equity people. It's like, what vision? Just hit your numbers. But I'm working with one right now, and his right now is about numbers and hitting these these numbers and looking at what percentage of the market it's going to be and things like that. And I'm thinking, who's going to be motivated by that? Nobody's going to go home and say, honey, I just helped penetrate the market by two more bips. I mean, I just lowered our gross margin by three basis points. I mean, who cares? That is not significance. Yeah, it's doing a good job. And that's what you need to do in business. You definitely need to do that. The numbers are super important, but you're not going to get motivated by it. Instead, for us at blinds.com, it wasn't just to be the best in the world at selling blinds online, which we were, but that's not what our, our vision was. Our vision was to be the best at the world at selling complex, customizable, hard-to-buy products, which meant Everything that we were doing for blinds would relate to multiple product categories, such as irrigation systems, custom irrigation systems, custom tables, custom chairs, potentially custom clothing. We didn't know what it was going to be, but all the development that we did on our process, on our IT, on our systems was built on doing a platform that would one day support multiple product categories. Right. That was much more compelling than being a big blinds company. I mean, really. First of all, let me also say this, and this is a secret. I don't care about blinds. <laughs> I am not passionate about blinds. Don't tell anybody, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm passionate about being in business, any business. And that gets us, I think, to our purpose. And our express purpose at blinds.com is to help people become better than what they ever believe possible to help people become better than what they ever believed possible. It's not about achieving. It's not about attaining. It's just getting better and better than what they ever believed they could be. Okay, so if you've got a, a company that's got this compelling vision and people believe that as a result of, of being in this company and going to this compelling vision that they are going to become a better person and in fact do, because we don't just say it, we actually support it with money, with 
personal development, with the way we we talk. We can get into that later. But it actually happens. Who would want to leave? Our turnover was only 8%, which is unheard of. And even when we sold our business to Home Depot, you'd think there'd be a big exodus. But no, for three years, we lost hardly anybody. None of our, our, our senior team left and even a couple of layers down in three years after the sale because we were all still working towards that vision, that goal, and we were all still feeling significant and becoming better than what they ever believed possible. That's just a healthy environment where everything is getting better automatically, autonomously. You've got autonomous excellence happening, and that is an easy way to lead. You asked about leadership and the environment. Well, having that destination, developing leaders who are all getting better and supporting each other to help people get better than what they ever believe possible, that is a thriving, growing organization that's fun to be in where people are enjoying themselves. People would come off the elevator and they'd look around and they'd say, are you staging this? Like, people look happy here. They're smiling. They're laughing. You know, they're working really hard. And because they're working hard and feeling good about themselves and about their futures and about them growing as a person, yeah, that's why they're laughing. That's why they're having fun. And that's why they don't want to leave. That, to me, is what leadership is. Yeah, it's brilliant. And Jay, your, your secret about not really loving loving being passionate about blinds, it's its safe with me and the couple of thousand people who are listening. So uh, mum, mum's the word. <laughs> people say, you know, follow your passion. And, and th- I think this is important because people say, well, I don't know what I'm passionate about. Or are you passionate about growing? Are you passionate about just being in business? The product and service is not as important as the process of, I don't want to say the journey, but just the process of evolving and getting better is fun, of learning, of, of going into the ambiguity of business, ambiguity of life, the game of figuring out how to take calculated chances about understanding downside risk versus upside potential and measuring those things. That's the fun of business. And when you realize that when you go into business and when you're tackling anything, that you never have enough information, but that knowing that you don't have enough information is enough, and that at least gets you to start, that actually frees you up. And it allows you to say, you know what? None of us really know everything, including you, Jay. And you admit it. Yeah, I don't. And I actually knew nothing when I started, as I previously said. But it was fun learning, and I'm still learning. And we're all learning. That's part of the the beauty of it is not knowing what's going to happen. Who wants to have a life where you know every step of the way what's going to happen? I'm sorry, that's boring. I don't like that. (laughs) You don't play games and know you're going to win. I mean, you may be good, but you don't know. Look at March Madness right now in the United States, all the upsets. That's pretty fun. I mean, people get excited about that. And don't you want to be one of those comp- one of those uh, teams that's upsetting the big guys? That's beautiful, and that's who we were. We were we were people who were who knew nothing. They didn't know us. We had very little money, and we upset the big guys. We upset a- Amazon and Lowe's and Home Depot. That's a beautiful thing. That's what life is: is achieving things that you'd never believe were possible, and doing these things, especially against the odds. 
That's that's yeah. that's beautiful. I can see the, the the joy and energy and excitement that brought in, in your face. I can hear it as, as you're talking. And, and I'd love to ask you about that, actually. So you started blinds.com from from your garage or from your bedroom, right? And kind of bootstrapped it and grew and grew and grew and then sold into to Home Depot, one of the biggest businesses in, in the world, certainly in, in the States. Like, what was that sort of acquisition journey like and you said earlier how you managed to for three years virtually no nobody left like what are some of your tips around around that because there'll be leaders and leadership teams kind of listening to this show who are just been acquired about to be acquired who want to know like how do we protect some of the culture keep the good stuff whilst getting sucked up into this big mothership what was your (laughs) what was your experience and what are your top tips there Okay, so if you're the target, you're the one who's being acquired. Uh, because we can talk about this as if you were acquiring companies, there are things that you can do to actually make it more likely that the acquisition is going to work because you know the odds are against it, right? Everybody knows that. Mm. But for us, and we've been talking about culture for, for most of this discussion, you would think that once a big monolithic company that's now $140 billion of sales and 500,000 employees would just gobble us up and spit us out and we'd just get shredded, our culture. But Home Depot was smart. They knew that we had developed something that they had tried to do and couldn't do. Right. Everybody had tried to do and couldn't do. And we had the number one market share in the world and we're growing and had that happen. It was the culture. So they wanted to be respectful to it, even though they knew that they weren't sure exactly what to do. But lucky for them, <laughs> the culture was such an important part of our of our existence that when they told us, please raise your hand and let us know if we're doing something that has unintended consequences that could destroy it. And there were multiple times when this was happening. They wanted to get rid of our variable compensation program. We knew that was going to just destroy the incentive of, a, of our design consultants. But, and we fought it the whole way. And finally, we went all the way to the top. And they said, yeah, you can keep that. But the people below them, five, six layers below, no. They, they said, well, nobody does it that way here. And we've got a big company. We have to be fair to all. I said, well, that wouldn't be fair to us. And that will destroy us. So we stuck up. And spoke up for the things that we knew needed to stay. And as a result, we integrated where it made sense and remained autonomous and decentralized where that made sense. So, for example, we integrated for HR. Obviously, being part of a company with 500,000 employees are going to have way better benefits and systems and processes than we could ever have. So we, we integrated there. Surprisingly, we did not report into their finance team. They did not bring in one of their finance people into our organization. I reported to finance as the CEO, and I had my own finance reporting to me. And that happened, I think, for three or four years post-acquisition. At some point, they just said, you know what? We're a public company. We can't do that. We just You're doing great. You're hitting all your numbers. You're growing. You're doing all the things that we wanted to do. But- we're just feeling a little that our governance isn't quite right. So they, they switched that. But we, we integrated for HR and finance. 
everything else stayed reporting just into me, and then I reported up. And that included IT. Okay, now that created some issues because we had our own budget, our own capital allocation for budgets. We ran the IT department in an agile way, which we had been doing for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And these were, these were things that people were just hearing about, but we'd been doing, we'd run the whole company in an agile way. Sprints, that's the way just my mind thinks, little bites at a time. And they allowed us to do that. And I think when you, when you think about the company that you're acquiring, what are the benefits? Why did you buy them? What do they have that's special that you didn't have? And stay away from it. Don't touch it. Don't think that you can do it better because there's a reason you bought them. The other thing is I think it's important that you, I call it a love language, Maybe you're familiar with Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. there's three love languages in business, as I call them love languages, as described in the book, uh, The Discipline of Market Leaders. And that, he, the authors say, there's product leadership, that would be maybe Apple. There's organizational efficiency, that's Home Depot. And then there's custom, customer intimacy, that's us. And... The key in Gary Chapman's book is that each person has their own love language. And just because the other person is not behaving that way or doing those things doesn't mean they don't love you. They just define it differently. So in business, if we define ourselves in one way and Home Depot in another, let's just say you're really good at operational efficiency. We're really good at that. Let's let us exist with our own superpowers and not try to change the other. That's the key. Now, that doesn't mean that we didn't learn how to be much more organizationally efficient. We learned that, and that was one of the great things about Home Depot. We learned that. We learned how to analyze our business in a much more uh, scientific way, more detailed, and it helped us grow and be better run, no question. But our primary benefit, our primary love language, so if you're going to buy a company, find out what is their love language, Allow that to exist. Don't try to change that, and they're not going to try to change you. We have four core values, which I'm sure we'll get into some point. Home Depot has eight. The short story is their HR department said, you now have eight core values. What do you think my answer was? No, we don't. In fact, we don't even have 12. We have four. Our core values are our core values. They're core to us. This is what we do. What you have makes complete sense, and we admire those things. And yeah, we do those, but that's not what drives us. That's not what drives our behavior. Our four core values are what do it. And therefore, we resisted and maintained those four. Now, what we did is we created a circle of our core values, and then we put their eight core values around our circle. But just to show that we're part of the family, respectful because I mean, they made sense. There's nothing wrong with them. But that was another way that we maintained autonomy, separate and distinct, yet part of the whole. I think, and the other thing I do is you need, before the acquisition even happens, before you close, what are the expectations? This gets into destination again. So many times I've seen companies, and I've been a part on both sides, where Neither company knew exactly what was going to happen on day one. You have a military background. Do you go into battle saying, 
let's just go to the battlefield and see what happens. <laughs> no, you don't do that. You have a plan and it's a thoughtful plan and you think about it and you get all the different constituencies as to what's needed. And if you, if you're in the air force and you need the army, well, you need both. You need to understand all the coordination of effort between everybody. And that's what, that doesn't happen necessarily. The, the buyer, the acquirer looks and says, I know what we're going to do, but they don't tell the, the target. In fact, they don't even ask the target. They just think they know. And therefore, the, the target is, that has no idea what's going to happen. And then on day one, you're thinking, okay, so now what do I do? And then all these expectations are put on you that you had no idea, and you're having to catch up and figure all this out in the dark, when if you'd known beforehand on day one, you would have known exactly what to do. And you would have known exactly what to do in week one and month one and month six. You have to have a, an, an integration plan in advance of the actual closing and that everybody needs to participate in. Start collaborating before the event and you'll have a better event. And it's much more likely that everybody will know what to do because you've gotten the input from people and they've had a part in their own destiny as opposed to being worried and scared as to whether they're even going to lose their job. I could go on forever on that. <laughs> it's fascinating. You, you mentioned kind of having a plan there and turning up at, at the battlefield. It, it still does amaze me how seemingly underrated like planning often is and how underutilized as a sort of basic component of good business planning is like not only turning up to the battlefield or for an operation would I have had a plan but I'd have been trained to have eight plans for eight different things that could potentially go go wrong and I'd still know the thing that would go wrong would be the one I'd not even considered but having all of those plans means you're just prepared and you can react and, and respond rather than turning up on the day and not really having a clue what you're going to do. No question. Uh, and people are afraid to actually bring up these contingency plans and admit that there are weaknesses in the plan or possibilities that could occur because they're afraid it's going to make them look weak and they don't want to therefore go into a plan that doesn't look ironclad. It's much stronger to say we've assessed all the risks and we know it's not a perfect plan, but it's the best plan, and it's the one that we're going to do. And we know what we're going to do if this, this, and this happens. And if something else happens, okay, we didn't think about it, but we've looked at what we believe is the downside risk, and we can live with that. So let's let's proceed. I'll say one other thing about this integration plan, which I think is important. When you run a business, you're running it pretty tight, generally, to save cost. That doesn't mean then that the people who are running the business have the time or the mindshare to actually run an integration plan. It requires separate people. It requires an integration manager and potentially an integration team with pro a separate project manager and, and a separate integrator who knows the weaknesses of these types of plans and knows, has a sensitivity of the people and the the angst that people are feeling, the anxiety that people are feeling, as well as the business processes that need to be addressed. And having this separate person can create almost like a neutral party that can bring the, all the people on, on one side of the transaction together and also then 
interpret for everyone on the other side and create a plan that makes sense for both. So did you have that when you was acquired by Home Depot? Yes. And where did that where did that team come from? Was it did they come from Home Depot? Was it new people you brought in to blinds.com? Was it someone in the team that you just switched roles and said, right, you're no longer ops director, you're now running the integration now? Because people would be fascinated by this, the, the practicalities of it. Yeah. Well, first, we had acquired several companies in our growth. Most of it was organic, but from time to time, we did acquire three or four other companies. And we had acquired one a couple of years before Home Depot, maybe three years. And we hired an integration manager to buy that company. And so he was a, a contractor. And then he did such a good job that we decided to make him our CFO. And he became our CFO, COO kind of person, did great with that. Then when Home Depot came, we put him in charge of that integration as well from our side, when really it's the kind of person and the team that should have been on the Home Depot side, but we weren't a part of what the plan really was. Yeah, there was a point person from Home Depot. For us, we we were in the dark for for most of it, and we had to fend our way, which we're kind of used to. We talked about ambiguity before. It It was highly ambiguous, but it shouldn't have been. But the fact that we had acquired several companies and knew how to do it and knew the processes meant we had our own plan and we knew what we needed to do. And then as uh, we would then have to react to other things that were happening, it still didn't mean that we had enough separate people to integrate, but it was better than the alternative. Because now it's like, okay, so we want you to do this, this, and this, and this with integration. It's like, wait a minute, don't you want us to run our company? We have got a company to run and people target uh, the, the acquirers really minimize the pressure and the time that it takes to start integrating and just learning where the pencils are, just learning who you talk to for certain situations, what report is required when. All that, that's about expectations and understanding the destination. We didn't know that. We had to learn it as we went. Now, it all worked out great. It was a highly successful integration. We call it a merger. We don't say we were acquired by Home Depot. We say we merged with Home Depot, despite the fact that we were only like $115 million in U.S. sales. And at the time, Home Depot had $79 billion. And we had 175 people. There were, I think, 400,000 people at the time. So, yeah, we were tiny, but it was a merger, not necessarily of equals, but it was a merger of sorts. We And that's that's another way how we kind of amuse ourselves with that saying it was a merger is kind of amusing to us i don't know if so everyone at home depot thought that was amusing but it was fun just thinking about it because together we really were better i've always said that home depot that we were blinds.com was like um, tony stark and home depot was jarvis in the suit and together we were iron man and we could really bust up stuff together and we were both better as a result of having the other. And, and that's true. Yeah, there's a lot of aggravation and structural things and budgets and going through all that kind of crap. But it was one of the greatest times of my life. And I didn't need the money. I didn't need the job. But after selling the company, I stayed on for almost seven years. Why would I do that? unless it was still fun, unless I was still growing and we were doing all the things that we wanted to do. 
why would you leave that? I was becoming better than I ever believed possible be, being with Home Depot. So I can complain about it all I want, but I was there for seven years on my own account. I didn't have to stay. I didn't have to stay for one day and did. And it was because of all the things that we were talking about. Jay, I, I started off trying to scribble down all the little golden nuggets of information you were sharing, and I, I couldn't keep up and do that whilst paying attention to what to what you were saying. So you've absolutely got me sold on buying a copy of your book, which I can see over your right shoulder there, Lead from the Core. Just in the the couple of minutes we've, we've got left, can you just give us the the synopsis of, of the book? And we'll, of course, put the link to it in the show notes for everybody. But uh, yeah, tell us tell us about the book just for a couple of minutes, if you will. Sure. Well, I, I wrote the book because I wanted to make sure that whatever we were doing at Blinds.com to get to where we are, all these things we're talking about, and a, a lot more, obviously, would be put down so that all the new people could actually learn from me. <laughs> even though I wasn't going to be there. I knew I was going to leave the company. So this was that was the purpose of the book. Well, I started teaching in the business school at Rice University and started doing all these lectures around the country and realized all these lessons that I was going to teach to people at Blinds.com, everybody wanted to hear it. And it, these were about culture and about, as I said earlier, uh, bringing humanity back into, into business, respect, and how do you do that? And how do you actually have fun in business? And it's about four core values, the four E's. One, evolve continuously. You get better, all your processes get better, and you help everybody around you get better. And that's not just the people, that's all your stakeholders, your investors, your service suppliers, your contractors, everybody. And ultimately, your customer and customer journey will get better. Second, in order to get better, you have to take some chances, and that's experiment. Second E. Experiment without fear of failure. You can't get better unless you try some new things. End of story. Uh, the third is to express yourself. In order to determine what experiments you want or to stop doing experiments that people know are ridiculous to even try, you want people to speak up in their authentic voice. So you want people to feel safe to say what's on their mind and to say, Jay, you said that the destination was here, but now you're wanting us to do this. That feels like we're going in the wrong direction. Could you help me bridge that? Boy, if somebody said that to me publicly in a meeting, I would praise them. I would want to hug them because it's exactly the kind of behavior that I want people to do. And I want to celebrate that. And so we did. So people had the opportunity to speak up. That's the 30 Express. And then the fourth, you've heard me mention this before, enjoy enjoy the ride. And enjoy the ride means it's games, it's celebrations, it's recognition, but it's about working your ass off and doing things that people told you that you could never do and evolving and experimenting and dealing with that ambiguity we mentioned earlier and expressing yourself and seeing everybody having fun and walking past a room and seeing everybody in there animated and, and working on some type of Pareto chart or some anything, whatever they're working on, they're diagramming something. And you just look at that and you go, this is fun. This is, I don't even know who these people are. I don't think I've ever, I remember walking down the hall and I, I looked in a room and I didn't recognize anybody in there. And they were my employees. Like, God, we've got 500 people right. now. I said, who are they? Said, They've been here for two years. I said, what? I used to know everybody's name. And now I'm seeing this happen. So that's enjoying. 
That is enjoyment. So the book is about how to apply that to their lives, whether they want to start a business or whether they just want a little entrepreneurial spice in their life to try something new, to figure out how you can be experimental and still be risk averse, how you can speak up, what, how you can establish an environment. And has lots of examples of how to do this, of what worked for us. And hopefully it'll help other people get better because my definition of success is being in the process of getting better and helping everybody around me get better. Love it. And that book is just an example of that. If that book can help people get a little better, then that's success for me. Now, it was a Wall Street Journal bestseller, so it sold and is still selling a lot. It's doing great. But that wasn't the purpose of it because it's it wasn't a business thing to try to sell and make a lot of money selling books. It was to just help me feel and be successful by helping everybody around me get better. And the book gets leverages that to people who I will never meet and never see and never talk to, which is also pretty cool. No, there was the goal. You've just sold one extra copy. I'm going to go on and grab a copy before <laughs> the day is out. So I'm looking forward to, to reading it. Thank you, Ben. Jay, thank you so much for your time today. I've stood here vigorously nodding in agreement with everything you've said. Kind of, I've got that slightly achy feeling in my cheeks from just from smiling, enjoying the conversation. And there's just so many like pearls of wisdom and actionable ideas you've you've shared kind of with me and the listeners today. So thank you so much for your generosity of time and, and knowledge. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Ben, thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. There you have it, folks. Episode 83 of the show. I really can't believe we've done 83 episodes already and we are rapidly closing in on the 100th episode. If there's anybody you would love for me to interview as a guest on the show, then please drop me a line and let me know. Or if there's anyone in your network who you would love me to interview, then feel free to connect me with them also. And I have a quick favour to ask before you go. Before you head off and do anything else, I'd be massively appreciative if you could head over to wherever you listen to the show, or you're probably there now, so stay right where you are. And if you could take just a few minutes to rate, review and subscribe to the show, that would be awesome as it really does enable us to keep bringing you more and more episodes of the show in the future. But that is it for now. That is it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. Take care of yourself and lead on. Mm-hmm.